Well, again, look in your Bible to the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. We're going to conclude this chapter today, and then, uh, Lord willing, next week turn into chapter 3 as we move towards a conclusion of this study through this early epistle that Paul wrote to the church that he founded in the city of Thessalonica on the north end of what is now modern-day Greece. Paul concludes this chapter with what's known as a benediction, a benediction. Now, when we hear that word, benediction, we often think of the closing prayer of a corporate worship gathering. That's typically the way we use the word, and that's certainly not a wrong way to use the word. But the word benediction is actually broader in meaning than just that. The word literally means, bene means good, benefit is good, right, is something good for you. Diction is speech. So literally benefit or benediction is good, beneficial speech. It's a good word. And a benediction, a good word doesn't just have to be given at the end of a worship service. A good word, a benediction, be given at all times. In fact, in this book of 2 Thessalonians, there's not one, not two, but three benedictions that Paul gives. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, we'll study today, and in the coming weeks, we'll look at the end of chapter 3 at another benediction. Every weekday morning, our family gathers together for our family devotional time in our dining room table at 6.30, and as we conclude that time together, I always give a benediction to our family. It's a word of blessing, usually in the form of a prayer. Normally, that benediction, that prayer of blessing, has to do with whatever the scripture we studied together as a family that morning dealt with. And I'll pray that the truths would find soil in our hearts to, that would bring forth the fruit that that scripture or that study we had together that morning was leaning towards. But very often, I'll give a benediction to our family, and I'll quote Sergeant Esterhouse from the Hill Street Precinct of the New York City Police Department. And I'll say to my kids on their way away from the table, hey, let's be careful out there. If you ever watch Hill Street Blues, then you get that. That's a benediction. That's a good word. That's a positive speech saying, hey, let's be careful out there. Uh, when I would bring my elementary age children, particularly even my middle school children, to school, I would drop them off at school, and I would give them a benediction as they were leaving my vehicle. I would say, remember who you are. That was my speech to them. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, my daughter Amber, who's a junior in college, was carless, and so I actually had to drive her to UTC and dropped her off at, on campus so she could go to class. And as 20-year-old Amber is getting out of my truck, I said, Amber, remember who you are. It was applicable as a kindergartner and as applicable as a junior in college. This is a benediction. This is a good speech, and this is exactly what Paul is doing here. So let's read the second of three benedictions that the Apostle Paul gives in this letter to the Thessalonians. Beginning of verse 16, here's God's word. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And now the focus of Paul's benediction here at the end of chapter 2 is the title of my message, Divine Comfort. He's praying and he's blessing them. He's giving this benediction, this good speech regarding God's divine comfort. And if you'll remember, particularly within the context of this chapter, you'll know exactly why the Apostle Paul gives this benediction at this juncture in the writing. He just concluded a lengthy instruction on the end times. 
He just concluded a lengthy instruction really to try to correct some of the misguided fears that existed among the Thessalonians. Namely, they had heard a false report that the day of the Lord had already happened, that Jesus had returned, and they missed it. And so Paul corrected that misguided thinking and gave them the truth. But yet still, the way in which he corrected them could have also been a cause of concern for these beleaguered believers. Why? Because now he's presented to them a different set of concerns. Not that Jesus has come and you missed it. That's wrong. But what he said is, here's how you know you haven't missed it. Before Christ returns, two unmistakable signs will happen. He says that day will not come unless, one, the man of lawlessness is revealed, and two, the great apostasy or the great rebellion takes place. Now, this church in Thessalonica had experienced intense persecution, hostility, and affliction because of their commitment to Christ. In the first letter he wrote to them, which we studied in the spring of this year, we saw how he referenced this affliction and hostility multiple times. In chapter 1 of that letter, he said that the message of the gospel came to them, quote, in much affliction. In the next chapter, he says to them that you have suffered much. And now look at this second letter, how he begins it in chapter 1, verse 4. He writes to them and says, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. Why? For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So this church, these believers understood what it meant to suffer for the sake of the gospel. They understood what it meant to experience tribulation because of their faith in Jesus. And now Paul is presenting to them the high likelihood that the intensity of the persecutions and afflictions they're experiencing are only going to increase. They're going to get more and more intense as the unleashing of satanic power through the Antichrist and through this rebellion takes place in the world. Let me ask you a question. How would that make you feel? We've already endured intense persecution. We're already enduring great hostility because of our faith in Christ from our own countrymen, from our own families. Oh, by the way, it's going to get more intense. It's going to get more difficult. That's like if you go to the doctor and you describe to him, kind of like I have a nagging pain in my shoulder, and he does the x-rays or he does the examination, and he says, guess what? I've got some good news and some bad news. The good news is you have reason for pain. Here's the bad news. It's only going to get worse. And physician Paul gives the same word, and it's an authoritative word. You think it's bad now. It's going to get worse. And this troubling outlook for the future, that's the very heart of the letter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And I think that's why Paul gave not one, not two, but three benedictions in this letter to give them a good word, to give them a word of blessing and prayer of blessing for them. And the benediction we're studying today is particularly poignant because it comes right on the heels of this instruction about the end times events. In these two verses, there are really three profound realities that Paul presents to us and to them. And this is not just a wishful prayer on behalf of a pastor for his church. This is apostolic authority. He's writing holy scripture, and therefore it bears the weight of that authority. Well, here are the three realities I want to see from this passage today. First of all, number one, he's making this prayer on the basis 
of the lordship of Christ. He's making this prayer and this benediction on the basis of the lordship of Jesus Christ. He begins this benediction by reminding them of Christ's ultimate rule. Looking at verse 16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. He groups together here, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is not the first time Paul has done this. In fact, in First and Second Thessalonians, he does this multiple times over and over again. He groups together God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But this particular grouping here in this benediction is unique. This is the only time in all of First and Second Thessalonians that Paul lists Jesus first. He says, now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. Now, this is a striking assertion. Here's why this is profound. The Apostle Paul was a Jewish Pharisee. He was one from the conservative wing of Judaism that firmly believed in the Scriptures. He had the equivalent of a Ph.D. in Hebrew studies. As such, he believed there is only one God. He believed the commandments, the first being, you shall have no other gods before me. And so, he lists Jesus first here. Well, this is, could be blasphemous. There's to be no other God before the Lord your God. But yet he lists Jesus first. You see, this well-educated, orthodox, Jewish Pharisee had come to realize that Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus born to the Virgin Mary, Jesus was, is, and always shall be God. So it's not blasphemy. He is asserting the divinity, the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, there are some skeptics who say this concept of the deity of Jesus, that this human being known as Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, God. There are skeptics who assert that this was an invention of church power brokers in the fourth century, long after Jesus was gone, so that they could kind of gather power for themselves. In fact, this skewed view of the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ was actually put forward and popularized about 15 years ago in this book by Dan Brown. It's called The Da Vinci Code. I read this book cover to cover in one weekend. It is a page turner. It is exciting. It is thrilling. And this book, it is a novel. It's fiction, but it's presented as what's known as historical fiction. Here's how historical fiction is supposed to work. The historical backdrop of the story is supposed to be true, legitimate, and then there are fictional characters in the forefront that their story is told against the backdrop of history. For instance, the movie Saving Private Ryan. How many of you have seen that great film, right? Private Ryan's not a real person. They didn't actually exist. But that fictional story is told against the backdrop of the historical account of the D-Day invasion. That's what makes the story so compelling because of the historical accuracy of the backdrop of the film. But here's what uh, Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, does. Not only does it have fictional characters on the front, but it completely presents a false narrative about the backdrop of history. So this uh, fictional character by the name of Professor Teabing tells his student Sophie that the concept or the idea of Jesus being God, the deity of Jesus, it was actually 
superimposed on the historical figure Jesus by uh, Constantine and by the Roman Empire so that they could garner more power for themselves because Jesus was such a popular historical figure. In fact, here's from the book, page 235, Professor Teabing saying to his student Sophie these words, Establishing Christ's divinity was critical to the further unification of the Roman Empire into the new Vatican power base. By officially endorsing Jesus as the Son of God, Constantine turned Jesus into a deity who existed beyond the scope of the human world, an entity whose power was unchallengeable. Nobody is saying that Christ was a fraud or denying that he walked the earth and inspired millions to better lives. All we're saying is that Constantine took advantage of Christ's substantial influence and importance. Constantine upgraded Jesus' status almost four centuries after Jesus's death. Now, many people who read this best-selling book, The Da Vinci Code, took that information as being historically accurate. Friends, it's a historical lie. That is not true. Christians can easily refute such statements just by looking at passages like we're looking at today. As we began our study in 1 Thessalonians, I told you then that 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, the book of Galatians, they are our earliest writings in our New Testament, them being written, dated around 20 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So they are very authoritative and very reliable, and they present the reality that the early church, the early Christians believed Jesus is God. He's divine. Centuries before Constantine allegedly perverted that uh, doctrine at the Council of Nicaea. Well, as I mentioned before, there are several reasons just even in this text we can see the deity of Jesus. First, again, Paul, this Pharisee, lists Jesus first. But in addition to that, um, we see uh, Paul affirm Christ's deity by the very fact that he prays to Jesus. You don't pray to a human, right? You only pray to God. And he's praying to Jesus. Further, you've got two subjects, the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father, but you can't see this in the English, but there's singular verbs who loved us singularly. In other words, he sees this, this uh, work of God Two persons, actually three persons, and one verb. They're working together to accomplish the purposes. But probably of greatest significance is the title that Paul gives Jesus. There's numerous occasions in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul quotes from the Old Testament Scripture. And any time he quotes the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh, he always translates it into Greek with the Greek word kurios, which is the word used here that's translated Lord. Paul refers to Jesus as God, as Lord, as Yahweh, curious. There's no doubt Paul believed in the deity of Jesus Christ, and it can be established in the very earliest of Christian teaching. You may say, well, that's all well and good. Thanks for the history lesson. It can be established historically that the deity of Jesus Christ is not some later doctrine that was superimposed on church doctrine, but actually the earliest Christians believed it. What does that have to do with me today in 2021? Here's the most important question. Do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus is God? This is the most fundamental question, because if Jesus is not God, he cannot be Savior. And if he is not Savior, friends, then we are all lost in our sins. It has everything to do 
with today. See, Paul is appealing to the divine agent of all creation. We quoted together earlier uh, from the book of Colossians chapter 1. He's the very agent of creation. By him, the universe holds together this Jesus of Nazareth. The, The bottom line is that when we come together to worship on the Lord's day, we come to worship our Lord God, Jesus Christ. We're declaring our allegiance to the divine Son of God. He, he's not just a great moral teacher. He's not just an example of sacrificial love. Jesus is God, and as such, he possesses all the aspects and characteristics of divinity. John, the apostle, also communicated the importance of us believing in the deity of Jesus. In 1 John chapter 2, he says this, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Paul is saying this basis of his prayer is the deity of Jesus Christ, the lordship of Jesus. Secondly, the other basis for Paul's prayer is this, the love of the Father. The love of the Father. He continues in verse 16, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. This brief phrase contains some of the greatest statements ever made about God's ministry and work towards we who are his people. He loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Let me ask you a question. When you find yourself in a time of difficulty, in a time of trial, who do you turn to for help? You turn to people who you know love you, right? People who have demonstrated and expressed their love for you in the past, you know there's a high likelihood they'll demonstrate and express that love for you in the present and in the future. So family, friends, church members. Who does Paul turn to for help for these beleaguered believers in Thessalonica? One who has already expressed love towards them is so gracious to express it again and again. Now, what is he speaking of when he speaks of the love of the Father, the love that God expresses? He could be uh, referring to what we considered a couple of weeks ago, the electing love of God demonstrated towards the beloved in eternity past. But I think particularly, we can look at Paul's normal way of thinking of God's love towards Christians throughout his writings. And what he typically is referring to when he talks about the love of God toward us, he's always referring to the cross of Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Most succinctly, we see that in Romans 5, 8, where Paul writes, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit shows his love toward undeserving traitors, He demonstrates his love towards rebels to his rule and reign by sending Jesus to die for us. Just let the impact of that reality settle in your heart for a moment. We who are completely undeserving of God's love have been shown eternal love. I've noticed recently there's been a significant increase in advertisers using this sense of consumers' deservedness to sell products. You deserve this $60,000 car. 
You deserve a new kitchen. Just yesterday, as I'm watching football, there was an ad that came on for a cell phone. And the ad said, I'll paraphrase, because of all you've gone through over the last 18 months, you deserve an iPhone 13. (laughs) Yeah, I deserve this $1,300 cell phone. Yeah, I deserve it. Over and over again, this idea of our deservedness, our children deserve, our families deserve, you deserve. Even McDonald's, this was their byline several years ago, you deserve what? A break today. Listen, if I needed a break, McDonald's the last place I would go. Let me just tell you. But these advertisers have obviously tapped into something that we have this sense of deservedness. I've said it from this pulpit before, I'll repeat it again. You don't deserve jack squat. The Bible paints a completely different picture of our deservedness. Jesus did not die for you because you deserved it. This is what grace is. It is unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor lavished upon you. And so when Paul is looking at a basis for appealing to the triune God for these beleaguered believers under hostile persecution, he comes to them on the basis of the love that is completely undeserved. He's, he's undeserved. He's praying for divine comfort that has already been demonstrated in the past that he would continue to demonstrate it in the future. It is this, this spring of overflowing love from God that is the only source for any hope in the future. Often we think of this word comfort, but we often think of the the idea of sympathy. When somebody loses a loved one and we try to provide some kind of comfort, either through our words or through our presence, we think it's sympathy. This word is so much more than just sympathy. Uh, The word here, it's used in a noun form in verse 16 and a verb form in verse 17. And the different cognates of that is is a compound word in Greek of para, which means alongside, like parallel, para, kaleo, which means to call. The noun form is also used by Jesus of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, the comforter, the helper, the the paraclete, the one who comes alongside you. Paul is praying for this kind of comfort, that the very God of the universe, the creator that he created all that exists, would parakaleo, would come alongside you, would provide this eternal, that's what he says, eternal comfort. That means it will outlast all afflictions. It will outlast all hardships and difficulties that we endure in this world. It's so easy to get distracted by the afflictions of this world, isn't it? It's so easy, trust me, I know, to get distracted by the headlines of the day, by the Twitter feed I go to on a regular basis. It's so easy to get distracted. But the God of the universe provides eternal comfort because of his love. Paul adds another resource that flows from the spring of God's love. Again, look in your Bibles at the end of verse 16. God, our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope. (laughs) We've talked a little bit about hope this year, haven't we? That's been our theme. There is hope. (laughs) And this God of eternal comfort, this God of immense love, he's saying, will give you good hope. This is really the theme of First and Second Thessalonians. The banner 
of God's hope waves over eternity and will rule the kingdom of God forever. Friend, that same banner waves over our lives today. We have settled hope. To be a Christian is really, on one hand, to be pessimistic. We're realists. Now, we do pray for God's blessing on our community, on our nation, on our city. Jeremiah 29, 7, we, we work and we pray for the, the welfare of the city, but we know those are short-term prayers because there's the reality that things are only going to get worse. Ultimately, we're pessimistic about how this world's going to end up. But though we are pessimistic, we are the ultimate optimists. <laughs> because although the world is going to get worse and worse with little snippets and growths of revival and, and spiritual fervor, we're the ultimate optimists, not because of what we're going to do in this world, but how God is going to remake and recreate this world. So we have this hope of eternity. Though things may be dark in this world, we have the light of Jesus Christ, and it shines eternally. And here are these Thessalonians. Paul's with them maybe only three weeks, perhaps a little longer, and then he's gone. And they are left as the lambs in the midst of wolves seeking to devour them. He's far away in the southern end of Greece, and he's writing these letters to them. They're confused. They're uncertain. They're under affliction and hostility. The world is cruel, but over and over and over again, Paul points them to the reality of this good hope. Christ will rule. And it is worth noting that Paul dispenses this hope to them through the Word of God, through the Scripture. He's writing, as I mentioned earlier, Holy Scripture as an authoritative apostle. And this is how hope comes to us. If you are hopeless, here's my number one instruction. Get in the Bible. Get in the Bible. In fact, notice how Paul put it in Romans chapter 15. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Friends, it is the Scriptures alone, our meditating on the Scripture, our memorizing the Scripture, our mulling over the Scripture, our studying of the Scripture, the preaching of the Scripture. It is the Scripture alone that in such dark days as we're seeing around us, we can have an enduring hope. One reason the Bible is so encouraging is because the Bible brings us this divine comfort. And contrary to what people may think, the overarching theme of the Bible is the last thing we see in verse 16, and that is this, grace. God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Did you know that the Bible does not come to you as a list of do's and don'ts? The Bible does not come to you as a list of expectations you must fulfill in order to be accepted by God. That if you don't do enough of these things, well, you're going to be left out in the cold. Maybe you think, well, if God just cuts me enough slack, he'll, he'll accept me. This is not the message of the Bible. In reality, the Bible says we're much worse than that. We're much worse off than that. The reality of the Bible says that we are all so guilty before God, there's no amount of rule-keeping, there's no amount of list-following that we could do to be acceptable to God. I can remember particularly in high school, and one in memory in particular is in the 
class of geometry when our teacher told us that this last exam we had just took was going to be graded on a curve. And anytime you've heard a teacher say that, there was a relief collective among the students. Of course, Mr. Smarty Pants in the class scored a 88. And we're off wondering, well, you scored an 88. Now, how does grading on a curve work? Well, if 88 is the highest grade, you add whatever you need to do to get that grade to 100, which would be 12. So if dummy scores 60, well, you add 12 to that, it's a 72. I passed the tests, right? That's what grading on a curve is. God does not grade on a curve. In fact, even if he did, Jesus busts the curve because he scores 100. <laughs> He's perfect. We are not. And it is not this graded system of you maybe got an A, a B, a C, a D, and maybe an F. No, it's either pass or fail. And the picture the Bible paints for all of us as human beings is we've all failed, miserably so. But God is a God of grace, who those who place their faith in Jesus have his perfect score credited to their account. His righteousness becomes ours. Why? Because our sin became his. He took our sin. This one who passed every test, this one who aced every assignment, his perfection is the grace we're looking to. And here's Paul's overarching point here, that even though these Thessalonian Christians are experiencing profound affliction because of their faith in Jesus, there is eternal comfort, there is good hope through the grace of God. And this knowledge would move them forward in their faith in God. That leads to the third thing I want us to see from this passage. In the conclusion, verse 17 we see the life of response. The life of response because of this love and this grace and this hope that has been lavished upon us. Verse 17 is really the petition, the prayer Paul prays. Uh, verse 16 is kind of the setup. This is why he's praying this prayer, because of the deity of Christ, because of the love of God, because of the grace, because of the hope. Here's his request that God would comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Again, remember, Paul is praying this prayer at the conclusion of his end times instructions. It follows after he described the satanically inspired Antichrist who would take up rule and reign in this world. It's, it comes after he described this great apostasy and rebellion that would come against the church. Let me ask you a question. If you knew the rise and rule of this great biblical figure known as Antichrist was right around the corner, how would you prepare? What would you do in preparation for the great apocalypse? Well, there's actually people today who are doing that. They're known as preppers. Have you heard of this phrase before, a prepper? Yeah, what are preppers? Preppers are those people who, and they're growing exponentially, uh, someone who preps and prepares for coming crisis, natural disaster, pandemic, government collapse, apocalypse, you name it. So what do they do? They prep by stockpiling all types of goods and, and uh, resources. These survivalists, they are preparing themselves, they're prepping to go off grid when everything shuts down. If the apocalypse comes and everything shuts down, well, we're prepared. Some even go as far as buying you know, remote pieces of property, building cabins or bunkers, and there they stockpile their non-perishable food items and, of course, lots of guns and ammo, right? When COVID first hit, for whatever reason, you remember back last March, 
the stores in, in a matter of two days no longer had toilet paper, right? Well, these preppers were laughing because they had already stockpiled all kinds of toilet paper, so they're ready to go. Well, this obsession with prepping for the future apocalypse, it's no longer just among the stereotypical middle-aged white men wearing tinfoil hats, <laughs> but studies show that this prepping craze has entered every cross-section of society. In fact, one website I looked at this week, the, the owner of this resource institution for preppers said the largest growing faction of his clientele is actually young women. In fact, that group has grown by 25 times since the COVID lockdowns. In fact, it's even come to the uber-rich. In uh, Wichita, Kansas, just north of Wichita, Kansas, there is a former missile silo that was built by the United States government. That property has since been sold, and it's been turned into and converted into luxury prepper survival condominiums. You can, for the low, low price of $3 million, get one of these completely outfitted prepper condos, and you can live there. Or if you want the, the uh, penthouse suite, it's only $4.5 million for that prepper condo. Now, if you knew the apocalypse is coming, and here's a hint, it is. If you knew Antichrist was coming, here's a hint, he is. How would you prepare? Now, these types of things aren't altogether wrong or misguided. Jesus even told his disciples, hey, when you hear that the destruction of Jerusalem's coming, head for the hills. And they did, which is why many of the Christians in Jerusalem lived through the collapse of Jerusalem. But I would say beyond any kind of physical preparation for any coming collapse of the world as we know it, any type of physical preparation or stockpiling of goods, we ought to have a spiritual preparation. Contrary to our expectations, Paul, Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians is not that the bad people around them would stop being so bad to them. Now, he could have prayed that, but he didn't put it in the text. His prayer for them, instead, that's recorded in Holy Scripture, is not that the bad things on the outside would stop, but that God would do a work on the inside of them, through the Spirit, by God's power, His persecuted people. Why? So that they can live with the utmost usefulness for the kingdom in these last days. First, he prays for comfort. Again, this word, parakaleo, to come alongside. It's a noun in verse 16. It's a verb in verse 17. The point is that God has already, noun form, comforted you eternally. We're praying for you that you will now, present tense, experience this internal, ongoing comfort within, in our hearts. And I have to believe this request for God's eternal comfort is in contrast to what was going on inside their hearts at the beginning of chapter 2. Remember what's happening in chapter 2, verse 2? He says they were shaken in mind and alarmed. And he's praying for eternal, internal comfort. He's saying this is not the way Christians ought to live in light of the coming dark days. Shaken, alarmed, disturbed. No, we trust in the promises of God and we're praying that we would be comforted by those promises. He prayed a similar prayer in the book of Ephesians chapter 3. 
Paul prayed that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through prayer. This is Paul's benediction. This is Paul's prayer of blessing. Threats abound. Hostility is on the rise. But here's a very practical request where the rubber meets the robe. He says, I pray that you would be established in every good work and word. This word for establish is the idea of a buttress, a support. When there's a wobbly wall, a, a, this established, this buttress would be put up to make it firmer, to make it stronger. Most of you, when you arrived this morning, you probably noticed our new bus barn across the street there that's housing our, our minibus, right? They erected it. This team of three Hispanic men from South Georgia came up, and they erected that in two days. Well, as they got all this stuff laid out and ready to go um, and established, I was in my study, and I was looking out the window, obviously watching them because I'm very curious about how they're going to put this erector set up. And uh, I noticed when they first pulled up the first poles that had the rafter attached to it on the top, the three of them, two of them were lifting, and the other one had a rope and was pulling up. They really struggled getting that thing up. So guess what I did? I went out and helped them do the rest, right? That's just what I'm going to do. I'm going to help you build a building if that's an opportunity for me to do. So I went out there, and we got all those things up, and then they began to put those together and attach them, and I started pushing on them, and the whole thing was incredibly wobbly. I mean, the frame was up. It was, the building was up and as far as the, the bones of the structure, but it was incredibly wobbly until they put the corrugated steel siding on with thousands of sheet metal screws attaching and tying the whole thing together. According to the manufacturer, that building is now rated for 180 mile per hour winds. <laughs> Why? It was a buttress. What was wobbly, what was shaking, was strengthened. And this is what Paul prays for them. This is what Paul prays for us. That we would be established in what? Every good work and word. Rather than being so concerned about the political landscape that is going to hell in a handbasket, rather than being concerned about out-of-control inflation or whatever's happening on the border, yes, those things concern us as citizens of this country, but there are much higher concerns we have as Christians. Paul's praying for these beleaguered believers that they would have comfort within comfort in their hearts, and they would be buttressed, they would be supported, they would be established in these last days in every good work and word. Interestingly, this is the same way Jesus concluded his instruction on the end times in the Olivet Discourse. Throughout this study, every week I've gone back to the Olivet Discourse because I believe 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is actually Paul's commentary on Jesus' instruction in Matthew 24 and 25. Now, what does Jesus say his followers will be doing at the end of the age? As hostilities are increasing, as things are getting worse and worse, as Antichrist is on the move, how will Christians be living their lives? He says this in verse 35 and 36, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. By Jesus' own reckoning, 
in light of the cataclysmic events that will surround God's purposes at the end of human history. We are to be about the business of every good work and word. This is the call he's placed upon us. God has shown us who we are. God, by his spirit, comforts and establishes our hearts. And then we have this opportunity to be hopeful among our neighbors, to invest into them the divine comfort that we ourselves have been given. We show comfort to others by the comfort we have received from God. And that leads to my last thought. As our lives are established, buttressed, supported, strengthened in the love of God, revealed in his word, we will be energized to be a living benediction for others. And I pray that is what Lookout Valley Baptist Church would be in these days.